everyone in our time together uh, take communion. It's an opportunity for us to uh, personally reflect upon what God has done on the cross through His Son. And it's one of those experiences where you uh, serve yourself. You come up uh, to the table at the time where God uh, speaks to your heart on um, remembering Him, and then you partake of it at your uh, chair later on and just remember His work and His sacrifice for us. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Genesis, and as uh, I was thinking through the passage that we're going to be looking at again, I was thinking about what happened this, this past week and some of the things that kind of lead into what I'm going to share with you this morning in some ways. Uh, one, I don't know if you know that the National Selling, Spelling Bee went on uh, this past week, and aren't you amazed at the words that they can spell? I mean, who, who, who does that, okay? And not only the words they can spell, but what do those words actually mean? I was looking at uh, the... Uh, the word that actually caused the individual, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, Studi Mishra, from um, not finishing first to finishing second. And the word was Schwarmarmer, Schwarmarii, I think is how you say it. And I was thinking, not only can I not spell it or pronounce it, as I've already demonstrated it this morning, is it's amazing just what does that word mean? And then as I looked at what it meant, I was thinking, well, you know, I can relate to that word. In fact, hopefully you can all relate to that word. Uh, after I preach, this is exactly how you feel. What that word means is excessive, unbridled enthusiasm. That's what that word means. Isn't that what you all say? Swarmy R.I. after a church. That's, <laughs> you all just go out just saying that word, just thinking that in your heart. I'm just unbridled in my enthusiasm for being here. Uh, the, the word that actually won it this year was a word called... I'm not sure, sure I'm saying this right either. It's agrutapens, and that's an interesting word to spell. But actually what it means relates a little bit more to the section of God's word that we've been studying, particularly in Genesis chapter 3. It's what we maybe not experience in this place, you know, unbridled enthusiasm after I preach. But it is what we experience after we leave this place. Because uh, we enter into the world in which the world is trying to get us, all right? and cause us to, to fall astray from God. And what grudepens means is ambush, snare, or trap. And so this next week, as you encounter choices and decisions, and that's really what life is all made about, whether we're going to trust God or not trust God, we're going to follow His way or our own way, whether we're going to obey Him or disobey Him, often what gets us off the wrong path is grudepens. It's a snare, it's an ambush, and it's a trap. Now, now, the good news is, is that we don't go out of this place all alone. That, that God goes with us everywhere we go, and we have His strength, His power, His guidance, His Word going with us, so that we can not only know what to do, but how to do it. And so this morning, as we look again at, at God's words, it speaks about that which tripped somebody else, trapped somebody else in the past. We can look at how that is still true today, and then we can still look at how God is faithful and what cannot be fixed by anybody else, God can fix. Uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray as we look in your word this morning, and then as we continue to celebrate your goodness and your provision for us, as we look at uh, the facilities you have given us for not only improved ministry, but new ministry, as we look at the cross through communion, as we look at that finished work that you've done, that we might enter into a full relationship with you. Father, we also want to recognize that we live in a world that needs to be fixed. We live lives that continually need to be not only saved, but then continually be fixed because we fall down into patterns that 
that dishonor you and displease you. And Father, I would pray two things. I, w- I would pray, number one, that we would all be challenged by the, the, the truth that we need to depend upon you because it's so easily to be trapped, uh, to be ambushed, to be, to be a person led astray. But then secondly, I pray that we might recognize that, that we are not left alone, that God, you can fix us. And Father, we just really pray that we might be people with a heart to want to lean upon you strongly. To look at your, your word, not just as an information book, but as, as a guidebook that, that tells us not only what to do, but how to do it. And Father, we pray as we look in, particularly this morning, that you might allow us to see those things that particularly apply to our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I want you to turn to a, a book in the Bible. It's very easy to find the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, it's the first book. And I want you to look to, to the third chapter. And, and we're going to finish this account in which... We recognize uh, where did all this mess come from? Where, where, did, where did this world that needed to be fixed uh, come to that place where it had to be fixed? Because we know as God created this world, he created it good and very good. He, he created it perfect. Uh, but then we messed up because we chose to not trust him in his goodness. We did not trust him that he was truthful. We did not trust him that he really knew what was best for our lives. And, and we chose to, to disobey him and, and to go our own, on our own path. And now we're going to find out what happens as a result of that and, and what does God want us to learn from that. Some things God, only God can fix, and the truth is there's a lot to fix. What happens when we do get entrapped and when we, when we fail, when we either willfully or uh, deceptively go down the wrong path? What is it we need to realize what happens when that goes on in our lives? And if, the first point I want to make this morning is, is you now experience shame, fear, and you want to hide from God when you go down the wrong path. You experience shame, fear, and you want to hide from God. Look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Uh, we looked at verse 7 last week, but just kind of getting the run of it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and that was right after they chose to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. The one singular thing that God put as a test to say, trust me, I have what is good for you, and I want to prevent you from experiencing that which is harmful for you. And we talked about sin as being not only that which is morally wrong or morally evil, but also desperately destructive. We don't, we don't want our children to, to put their hand on a hot stove because we don't want them to be what? Burned. And God recognizes that when we play with his matches, matches that only he should hold, that we will get burned. And so both of them, as they partook of the fruit, their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There are three things that you find in, that, in this passage. It says three things happened. They were filled with shame, they were filled with fear, and they hid themselves from God. Now, you're going to find shame in a lot of different ways. It's, a, it's that experience when you, when you know you did something you shouldn't have done, and, and you're hoping no one is what? Looking. You, you, don't, you don't want anybody watching what you've done because you'll be embarrassed that they, they know that you did what you did, and, or maybe you didn't do what you should have done, and, and you just don't want anybody to see you. And it's very close to the experience of guilt when we just feel bad on the inside. 
Now, now why is it that we feel shame and why is it we experience guilt? Well, the, the very simple reality is we experience guilt because we are guilty. And God did not ever want us to experience that emotional pain in our life. And yet it happens all the time because we take choices, make choices that we know are bad for us. And yet sometimes at that moment we're caught either in the emotion of the moment or somehow thinking maybe at this point it doesn't apply to us. We participate in that and it brings us shame. But there's another experience we have. It says says of Adam and Eve that they, they hid themselves from God because they were afraid. Now, that's kind of interesting emotion to have with a, a God that had provided everything for you, giving you life, giving you everything in the garden, everything that was good. And yet at the singular moment, when they had chosen to disobey God, when they fell to the trap, the, the goodapins, if you will, uh, of the evil one, they were afraid. Now, now why were they afraid? Well, in, in many ways, you could ask that question of yourself. Why are you afraid when you do something that was wrong? Because inherently, we all know that, that there's, there's consequences for our actions. And we, we just don't want to experience that. We, we don't want the judgment that can come. At whatever form and at what intensity. And so they were, they were afraid to be in the presence of God. And there's all kinds of punishments and disciplines that the parents give children. And sometimes it's, it's, it's the corporal physical punishment. Or there might be some freedoms restricted. But sometimes it's that fear to see the disappointing look on the face of your father or your mother. When you realize you, you've just broken their heart. And they, they used to look at you one way. And now they, by your action they have to look at you a different way because... They no longer can trust you like they used to trust you. They can't have that that confidence in you that they had before. The love that might still remain faithful has just been disappointed. And there's a fear that 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 will be reality in your experience and you want none of it. And of course that leads to the physical action. Then they hid from God. They didn't want God to see them. You know, there's so much in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, and I, and I hesitate what things to kind of drift off and talk about. But I always used to think, why did, why, did they, why did they clothe themselves? Why did they think that somehow because of their action that they had to put clothes on, and they, they sewed fig leaves together? And I don't have any authoritative thing to say to you about this, but since it was a question in my mind, I thought I'd at least share my thoughts out loud, is that there's a couple of possibilities here. You know, God allowed them to walk naked, so there wasn't anything wrong of being naked. But immediately after they sinned, they wanted to clothe themselves. Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One, theologically, is that because of their sin, that sin would be passed down to every other generation. And it would be a symbol forever because of their act. The, the sexual union between a husband and a wife would be passed. Not, not, not that the sex was evil. Or the union was evil because God created that. Not that because the child was not a blessing from God, but but there was something that was going to be passed on that shouldn't have been passed on. And that was that predisposition, that nature to be rebellious toward God and anybody else. To be self-centered rather than be God-centered and other-centered. And so that would be a forever symbol of we brought this on ourselves. 
But there's another possibility, too, it's interesting, in terms of just even our own, for the vast majority of people on this planet, that, you know, the vast majority on this planet, that they don't go around naked. You know, and, and why is that? Well, some of it because of the climate. You know, you might not have the perfect environment, so you want clothes on because it'll keep you warm or whatever. But there are, there are climates where you don't necessarily have to put on clothes. But I think part of it is this, is that maybe at that initial point of sin, there was something about their body that changed. And that which was good and very good, perfect, was now no longer perfect. You know, the reason I thought I'd give an object lesson and come out here naked, you know, uh, but I thought better about that, all right? Now, one of the reasons I would not do that is because my body isn't what? Perfect. You know, if I had an eight-pack and everything, you know, everything was perfect about me, maybe... You know, you got it, flaunt it, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. You know, the people who have perfect bodies, I mean, the people who win the Miss America, and I guess they don't have, they have Mr. America still, I don't know, whatever. They, any of those, those, those beauty contests, you know, I, I've, I've read some things about them, and they've done surveys like, with all the contestants, and they ask them, would there be anything in your body that you would change? And it's always unanimous. Every single one of them said, yes, there are a few things I would change. We recognize that there's, there's imperfections, even physically. And I think that we will be clothed even throughout eternity uh, because I think that will be a symbol for us that God had to clothe us because we had broken his commandments and that which was good and very good had become imperfect. And though when we see Jesus, we'll be like Jesus, there'll be no imperfections, it will be a symbol for us for eternity, just like Jesus will have the scars of the cross on him forever to remind us that it was only by the grace of God that we were made good and very good again. What happens when we sin? We experience shame, we experience fear, and we want to hide from God. Now, of course, the message that God wants us to remember, when we most need God, when we most want to hide from God, we most need to run to God. So, so we, need to, we need to change the natural inclination of our heart when we want to hide from God is run to God because he's the only way, he's the only one who can fix us. So in case, in, in terms of all the detail I showed this morning, if you, if you missed the main point, the, the main point is this. There are some things that only God can, what? Fix. And when they sinned, they needed to run from, to God rather than run away from God. There's a lot to fix. We experience shame, fear, and we want to hide from God. Secondly, when we do sin, we, we blame others for our actions. Anybody want to give a testimony? <laughs> give a witness? Isn't that the natural inclination? Is somehow find out a, a cause for why we did what we did. It can't, be, it can't be just our own heart that did that. Look at the very familiar narrative that most of us have heard many, many times before and in the future as well. God responds back to the words, we were hiding from you, we were afraid, we hid ourselves. In verse 11 he says, and he said, who told you that you were naked? And again, Whenever God asks a question, whether it's God the Father or Jesus, it's not because he needs information. He's making a point, just like my wife usually does. When she asks me a question, she's making a point. And that's what he's doing here. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Of course, he knew the answer to that. Then the man said, 
And, and really, I think he was putting a test here. Uh, it, it, it's like uh, um, it, it, the older my kids get, the, the, the less I want to give illustrations about them. But, you know, it's like, you know, we caught our kids in cookie jars, you know. And I remember uh, Alice caught Mark in a cookie jar on the top shelf. And, and, I mean, the cookie was in his hand. There were crumbs all over his face. And, and um, she asked the very simple, well, what are you doing, Mark? And he says, nothing. <laughs> well, uh, hello, all right. Alice knew what he was doing. Mark knew what he was doing, but somehow he wanted to deny what he was doing. And that's what has always happened you know, throughout history. Or, or somehow shift the blame. If you hadn't put those cookies there, I wouldn't have grabbed them, all right? Uh, verse 12. Then the man, uh, the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave of the tree, and I ate. So who did, who did Adam blame? Eve. He, 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 he blamed the woman. The woman God gave me. That's, that's the reason I participated in the one singular thing you didn't want me to do. So God says, okay, I'll talk to the woman. Verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And she responds, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So who did the woman blame? The serpent, the snake, the evil one. The one who had invaded the body of a, of a snake or serpent, the evil one, Satan. And, and he, is the, he is the reason I was deceived and fell into that action. But I think we need to, to look beyond the, the obvious there. As they blame, as Adam blamed his, the woman, uh, his wife Eve, and as Eve blamed the serpent, who were they really blaming? They're blaming God. Be, because who, who, who gave... Adam, Eve. God did. Who allowed the serpent to be in the garden? God did. So ultimately, you could see the rationale there. It was God that was at fault because if he hadn't brought that woman into his life, he hadn't brought that serpent on the, on, on the, on the garden, this would not have happened. Now, we don't want to kind of go beyond those type of things, but really, what God was asking for was a simple confession. I did it. And if you had asked the question, why did you? Because, because my inward desires wanted that which you had, had limited me from experiencing. That I, at that moment, I, as we looked at last week, I, I, I distrusted your clarity. Uh, did he really say that? Did he really mean I couldn't eat of that fruit? I distrusted your goodness. That maybe, maybe this it would be good for me to, to, to know more than I know now. He distrusted the truthfulness of God and the authority of God. Uh, let me bridge this where we all live. Uh, you know, when something goes wrong in my life, uh, whether, it's, whether it's an action I took or even a project I'm involved in, I, I look around initially to say, is there anybody else I can blame? You know, is, is there, is somehow I can somehow defend what I did or should have done differently. And, and normally when something goes wrong, let's say this making a relationship, we play the percentage game. You ever do this? Okay, we're in an argument now, and uh, I said some things, and the other person said some things, and, and then you begin to kind of track the history of this, and okay, what happened? And, and the worst thing to do in, a, in an argument is, is not be hysterical, but to be historical, where you analyze all the things, and that's exactly where my mind goes, all right? And then I define, okay, I, I might be a little wrong, but the other person, and they were a lot wrong. 
Okay. If you put it on a scale, they were 90% wrong and I was only 10% wrong. Well, if I'm only 10% wrong and they're 90% wrong, who's supposed to admit it first? No, no, they are. Right? They're supposed to admit I'm only 10% wrong. They were 90% wrong. Okay. What we need to look at those percentages. Okay. And, and, and let's be honest. Uh, Adam and Eve had some, some contributing factors why it happened. But the truth is, they were 100% wrong for the actions they took because of the part they took in it. And we all need to admit 100% to the part that we did and not then throw the garbage back on the other person. Because if we're wrong, we're wrong at whatever level. And we feel so justified when somehow we can shift it onto somebody else. And again, how do we change? That, that's not the natural bent of our lives. That's, that's, we just don't do that. Just like Adam and Eve. We want to blame somebody. We got we to gotta get back to the point of the message. Some things only God can fix. And, and if you want to be a little bit more humble in your, in your marriages and your relationship with your kids or things at work, it, it, it gets back to say, God, you got to fix this. It's so easy to be centered on self and not on the Savior. Some things only God can fix. The experience of, of sin is we experience shame, fear, and want to hide from God. We blame others. Thirdly, uh, let's look at what God gave as consequences of this. And he goes in reverse order here in terms of uh, dealing with a, or a particular order, dealing with the one who initially brought in sin into the universe. Uh, and he talks about the enemy that we have. And, and this is what happens as God fixes it. Your enemy is cursed, but he's not yet destroyed. Uh, look, look at what God does after he interrogates Adam and Eve. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So the initial thing he does is he takes that which the evil one uh, invaded the, the body of a serpent. And, and it's quite possible that serpent on that event day in which he enticed Eve, that he might have been a magnificent creature, one that was filled with beauty and was attractive and, and drew Eve into a, a conversation that was filled with enthusiasm, a swarmerai or whatever that is, and she was just she was excited about the privilege of talking to this being. Well, God likes object lessons. And even when we participate in the communion this morning, it's to bring us back physically to what he has done. It's to mark us to say, don't, never forget what I did on the cross. Think of the bread and think of the cup. Look back to the past so it might make a difference in the present as you look forward to the future. Well, what he did with that serpent is, is made that serpent be a, a creature that could not do anything but crawl on the ground and slither. Now, I know some of you have um, snakes as pets, and I praise God that you are used to have snakes as pets. And, 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 but for most of us, when I see a snake, I run, all right? It just, it just, it's the heart of, you know... Anybody has ever seen Indiana Jones? All right, it's it's one of those things where you know you think of those creatures, you go, whoa, okay. But he wants us to remind us every time we see that creature is that that creature is limited. There's a consequence 
for even the creation because of the fall. So, so our enemy uh, is cursed, but not yet destroyed. The snake particularly was crippled. But particularly we want to look at the deceiver, the evil one, Satan, the shining light, the one who comes as an angel of light, though he has a heart of an angel of darkness. He will suffer a fatal blow. Look at verse 15. And this is God speaking. And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, the evil one, the one who, personif- who the, the evil personified in the, uh, the serpent, you and the woman, and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring, uh, there will come one, singular, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is a verse we looked at about a month ago, and so I don't really have time to, to open it up again though some of the life groups spent some additional time because I guess I wasn't that clear on Sunday morning. They go, I don't understand what he said. But here's the picture here. This is the first glimpse of what God is going to do in the future. Okay, it looks like the enemy won. He he, he got those beings that were created in the image of God and he caused caused them to rebel against God. It looks like he is now in charge. And he's saying, that's only going to last for a moment in terms of all of eternity. And what's going to happen? I'm going to take from the woman whom you deceived. And in the future, out of her womb will come someone who you will bruise. You will will, um, cause to have pain. But what he will do for you, he will hit you in the head and you will suffer a fatal blow. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. As you look at the cross, as you think of, of the, uh, the work of the evil one, when, when he put Jesus on the cross it, and he put him to death, it looked like he had won. But it was really only a bruise because three days later he rose from the dead. And at that point, it, it demonstrated that, that Christ had victory over the grave. And there would be a fatal blow given to our enemy. Now, and then the Bible says that, that that blow is not fully lived out yet. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 16.20. Got to run, got to run here. Romans 16.20. Speaking to believers after the cross, he, he, he says this about their enemy. Romans 16.20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. In other words, it has not been a completed act as yet, as far as completely lived out. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says that the, our, our, we have an adversary, the devil, who is like a lion, seeking who he may devour. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we are living in a spiritual warfare battle zone, and we need to put on the full armor of God because we have the attacks of the enemy. And then in Revelation 20, verse 10, it talks about there's coming a time where the evil one will be cast in the lake of fire forever. And so as we, as we look at living out our lives, we need to recognize that we have an enemy out there. Uh, he, he has been ultimately defeated because of the work on the cross, and he will be completely out of our life in the future. Uh, the Bible says that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us because of our submission to God. But he's still, still an enemy in our, in our path. And, and this is all a result of our sin. But the good news is, is that God can fix this and will fix this. Let's move on Fourthly, 
what is the result of things that need to be fixed is that, that women are going to struggle in this life. And we'll get to the men in a moment. Women, we're going to struggle. You're going to struggle because of sin. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a couple things in here, and we're just going to touch them really briefly. Number one, there's going to be pain in childbirth. Now, women, how many women here have had children? Okay, would you say amen there's been some pain in that particular experience? Uh, as you know, Matt um, you know, ran a marathon uh, a couple weeks ago. I forget what time it was now. <laughs> it's thing. And uh, he had bloodied feet, all kinds of things. He was, he was pretty, pretty wiped out. They had to put him on a cart afterwards and things like that. And we were talking to Matt afterwards, and, and uh, his, dear, his dear mom said, you know, I, I, know, I know this is painful, but anyone, anywhere near the pain I had in bringing you into life, all right? <laughs> So he, she put it all in perspective. All right, a marathon, I know that stuff, but I look at I gave you birth. There is no pain comparison to bringing you birth. All right. So, so there's going to be some pain in that which God has blessed. But what's interesting, and I want to point, point this out, the, the, the ongoing pain, the, the pain, you know, most, you know, we had four children, and, and uh, after the first birth, usually every mother says, never again, never again. We're only having one child, all right? Then that pain kind of dissipates for a while, and they kind of forget that pain. So, you know, I, I wouldn't mind having another child, and they have that one. Never again, you know, and then they have multiple children, but, or whatever it might be. That pain dissipates. But there is, there is a struggle that will continue on. And I want you to see it. We don't have a time to spend a lot of time on it. But in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse, the latter part of verse 16, where it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's an interesting perspective on this verse that I think is accurate. The first part sounds positive, and you're... And, and your desire shall be for your husband. I mean, you're just going to love your husband so much. I mean, you just want to be with him and spend time with him. And, and just, I mean, he's, the, he's the passion of your life. And I'm thinking, all oh, right. But this is in the context of a curse here, right? The, the word for desire there is used 145 times in the Old Testament. And only two of the times is it translated desire. It's the word mashal. Uh, the Hebrew word. It's also used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. I have it in your text there. It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is, we'll get to it in a, in, a, in a week or so. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. And it's speaking about sin. Sin has its desire over you. It wants to control you. It wants to rule you. Now, that's the word desire. That's only the other time in all of... Um, the Old Testament, I'm aware. Maybe there, there might be one time in, in the Song of Solomon as, as, where, as well. But the rest of the times, it's translated rule. And so if you look back at this verse and you translate it this way, which would be a legitimate translation, your, your rule, your desire to rule shall be for your husband. You want to rule over your husband and he shall rule over you. What's that saying? That there's going to be gender battles in the home. And we know there's the aggressive way to approach that and the passive-aggressive way to approach that. But it, it's, it's the challenge of the husband having the role to be a servant leader in the home. But if ever you've ever been in a position of leadership and the people you're trying to lead don't want to follow, how, how, uh, how happy an experience that is, right? 
And that's the battle in the home. Is that the husband has given, been given the responsibility to do that and there's going to be so often times where the woman will reject that. And why? Because the woman recognized this is not a perfect leader. He's not always good. He's not always truthful. He's not always clear. He's not always you know, straight with his words. Kind of the same thing that happened when we rejected our leader. And, and that same battle goes on. You know, Ephesians 5 is pretty straightforward. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, so also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. There's that role of leadership in the home for the man. Therefore, just as Christ is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, now here is the battle. Love your wives, which is, the, which is a sacrificial servant love, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. A couple weeks ago when I shared this 16th century statement of Genesis chapter, one, uh, chapter, chapter 2 about the role of women being equal but different, um, it, I got a lot of positive response from it. Women... Woman was created from man, not out of his head to dominate him or to be over him, nor out of his feet to be under him or to be trampled by him, from under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. Which focuses on the equality of man and woman, male and female. But we are different. And there are roles. And there are responsibilities. And part of the consequence of the fall is that there will be a battle in the home over this. And the, the husbands need to be servant leaders, sacrificially in love, but they can't, they can't forfeit their responsibility to lead. The women need to respect their husbands, encourage them, support them, give them sound input, but demonstrate, just like our relationship with the Lord, that we are willing to be submissive to our Lord. And so as we think about this, there are so many relationships that blow up because there's a battle over who really is going to call the shots. And there's only one who can fix it. God is the only one who can fix the pride that can be either in the husband or in the wife in a home. Women will struggle. Men will struggle. Work will be hard and death will be certain. Look at what he says to Adam. And then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. And see, even at this point, see, what, what, what Adam did is he, he desired to please his wife at that moment more than he desired to please God. He listened to his wife when he should have listened to God. And see, that's the responsibility to be a spiritual leader. Every time you lead, it's not always going to be popular. Accursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Work is going to be hard. You know, work is a four-letter word. Then he goes out, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. 
Death will be certain. Some people ask me, they will say, well, you know, God said in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Well, they didn't immediately what? Die. Well, the point here is they immediately started to die. And isn't that really true? As a, as a new life comes out of the womb, I mean, that first moment they come out of that womb and they're full of life, they have now started the journey toward what? Death. And there was a death not only physically that was now put into the experience of Adam and Eve, but they had a death spiritually, immediately. And that's why they had shame, that's why they had fear, and that's why they hid from God. That's the death that was immediate. Work will be hard and death will be certain. And then finally, we only have one hope. And we need to realize again, if you missed the main point this morning, the main point is this, is that some things only God can fix. And as we think about our lives, only God can fix. Look at verse 20 to the end of the chapter. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of, of skin and clothing. We'll go back to that verse in a moment. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. I don't have time to really talk about how you might picture that. But this was the graciousness of God, even shown right after uh, Adam and Eve participated in sin. See, if, if they had stayed in the garden and partook of that, that fruit, they would have stayed in that state of sin forever. And, and so they had to be taken out of the garden so they experienced the graciousness of God that would rescue us from sin. Hopefully, as you come to in a relationship with God, you, you have a whole different attitude to those things that the Bible has said clearly that are wrong. Uh, so often at times, and you know, we made that analogy about playing with fire. When kids you know, are fascinated with fire, the initial thought in their mind is they, they want to get as close to the fire as they, what? As they can. Now, there's a place of that for warmth and light. But there's a place we recognize, hey, there's a place where if you get too close to it, you're, again, you're going to get burned. And our attitude towards sin is we want to be as far away from sin as possible because we know it's destructive. And so God took them out of the garden so they would not experience sin in their, in their, in their lifestyle in a perpetual way so they would not partake of that. And verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at, at the east of the garden of Eden, a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But what I want to end with this morning is, is found in verse 21. Also, Adam and, Eve and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, it's interesting, again, it, it, we mentioned this earlier in the message, is that when they sin, the immediate thing they want to do is clothe themselves. And, and they took fig leaves and sewed them together and, and they covered, covered their bodies. Well, God looked at their covering and said, that's insufficient. It, it, it's not enough. And really that pictures, again, even, even our, our own attempts now to somehow measure up to, to, to fix what only God can fix. People are incurably religious. People are involved in all kinds of things to try to somehow deal with the guilt in their own lives. And, and they'll do amazing things to somehow, somehow deal with that which separates them from, from God. It, it, it's really the, the religion of, uh, of trying to earn your way to heaven. To do enough righteous deeds that somehow outweigh your bad ones, and so God will accept you. But you know what those, those fig leaves look like to God? 
it's just dirty old things that fell to the ground. And he recognized that the only way to be in his presence was for, for him to give us his clothing, for him to provide for that which would last forever, to close us with his righteousness. A couple of great passages in the scriptures, Isaiah 64, verse 6, you might want to write these down. It, it says this, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. I'm not reading the whole passage here, but it's interesting in that passage, it speaks about going to a wedding. And, and, and this is one place, probably universally, when people go to weddings, they, they, they do dress up. I mean, they, they want to look pretty good at this ceremony that, 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 that just celebrates the union of two lives together. And, and, and they, they come with clean clothes, and, and they're trying to look their best, whatever the, the style is. And God is saying, hey, if, if we were trying to dress up for the wedding of the, the Lord's Supper of the Lamb, with our own clothes, they would be like filthy rags. Our best would be like filthy rags. And then Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Again, God, God, is, God loves to use object lessons, not just for children, but for adults. How'd you come dressed this morning? I'm not talking about the particular type of clothing, but on the outside, but but what's on the inside? And is it naked before God? You have nothing. You're like like the the emperor had no clothing. When you stand before God, every imperfection will be shown to him because you are not clothed in a way suitable to to be in the face of the Holy One. Or, or, or have you come this morning and on the inside what you have, you have been clothed with the garments of salvation. That the God sewed the skins that took a blood sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve. And you've been clothed in the, the garments that have been washed by the blood of the Lord. The blood of the Savior. Who wants you to be clean before Him, whiter than snow. There are some things only God can fix. And that's at the point of our relationship with Him. And then it continues on as we seek to live for Him. It's humbly relying upon Him moment by moment. Let's pray. Father, we are about to participate in an object lesson that you have given your followers who who know you, to simply say, God, I, I want to remember what you've done through your son for, for one in desperate need of the solution only you could give. Maybe this morning there's someone here that still hasn't made that step, and, and the invitation is open to, to admit fully your need and to turn from that which is destructive and morally evil in God's eyes, your sin. To run to God and to believe that Jesus fully paid the price for your sin on the cross and rose again. And to commit to follow Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior. And Father, when we pray, just a very simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to know you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life right now. You'll answer that. As we fully believe it and mean it. As we partake of the bread and the cup, might it be an experience of saying, God... 
if there be any hurtful way in me, change it. If there be anything that dishonors you, change it. If there be anything that needs to be fixed, fix it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.